0: All right. While they receive the offering, go ahead and pull out your Bibles to, to uh, Acts chapter 8. Acts 8 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, you're going to want a Bible, friends. Um, so if you, don't, if you don't have a Bible with you, you left your Bible at home or you left it in the car, there's a blue Bible underneath the seat you are sitting in. And I promise you, we're going to get into some heavy stuff this morning. You're going to want to follow along. So pull that out. In the blue Bible, Acts chapter 8 is on page 1014. Okay, Blue Bible, page 1014. In your own Bible, sorry, I can't help you. Acts 8, that's where we are. Um, We've been in Acts for a while now. We only have three weeks left. Only three weeks left in the book of Acts. This week and then the next two. And then we'll begin a brand new series. Now, we're obviously not going to finish Acts. We're going to come back to it next summer. So we're going to do 1 through 9 this summer. We'll do 10 through uh, maybe 18 or so next summer. And then uh, 19 through 28 the following. So we're going to be in Acts for the next three years. So... Gear up. It's going to be fun. All right, Acts 8. If you would, we believe here at Flourishing Grace that this book is the Word of God. It is breathed out by God. Every letter on every page is His. It holds all authority over our entire lives, every ounce of our lives. So if you would with me, in reverence to the Word of God, if you would stand with me as I read the Word for us this morning. If you're able, please stand. I will read from Acts 8 for us. Acts 8, 1 through 8. Reads this way. And Saul approved of his execution. That's the execution of Stephen. For those of you who weren't here last week, Stephen was stoned to death. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. When you preach through whole books of the Bible, right? As I said, we're gonna be in Acts for three years because we're preaching through the entire book. It takes a long time, and you come across passages and verses that reveal hard bits of theology. Last week, the stoning of Stephen um, is is a violent and horrible thing. Uh, This week, we're going to lean into a a theology of persecution. It's not a light topic. It's not an easy topic. But this is kind of one of the benefits and one of the hardships of preaching through whole books of the Bible. And so we're going to wade into this this morning. And we're going to wade into it by looking at kind of three buckets. We're going to look at the human context. The human context of persecution and suffering. We're going we're to look at a historical context of, of, the human, of, of the persecution and suffering within Jerusalem in that day. And then we're going to look at the kingdom context. Why does this actually Happen? Why does this? How does God use this for the advancing of His church and the advancing of His kingdom? All right, we're going to look at those three, three things. But before we dive into that, I want us to back up a little bit and just kind of gain a little bit of perspective, a picture of the church in Acts from chapters one through six. Chapters one through six. What, what's going on in the church? And then I have a question for you. I have a question for you. And so, for those of you who are brand new, maybe you haven't been here. This is your first Sunday ever here at Flourishing Grace. This will be a good recap. For those of you who've been in and out, this would be a good recap. But for those of you who've been around, I'm going to need your help a little bit. All right. So in Acts 2... For those of you who remember, for those of you who've been around, um, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends upon the early followers of Jesus, about 100 or so folks in a room, just like this, about this many people, in, in, in a room together, um, and, and they're, they're praying, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they're filled with the Spirit, and they begin to speak in languages, foreign languages that they don't know, that they've never studied, they never went to school for, and this is during the, the feast, the celebration of Pentecost. And so people from all different tribes and nations, Jews from all around the world who speak different languages, have descended upon Jerusalem. And so these early followers of Jesus take to the streets and they begin preaching the gospel in languages of the people who have gathered in Jerusalem. And people say, they're crazy, what's going on? This is crazy. Peter stands up and he delivers an amazing sermon, right? And in Acts 2, 41, you guys remember, for those of you who are how many people were added to their number that day? At the end of that sermon, how many people became followers of Jesus? Yeah, about, about 3,000. I hear have heard a few, but about 3,000. In Acts 2, verse 41, about 3,000 people became become followers of Jesus that day, which is crazy. That's crazy. Now, the very next chapter, chapter 3, right? Um, Peter and John are outside of the temple in what's called Solomon's portico. the heal a guy. And then Peter again gets up and preaches an amazing, weighty, heavy sermon. And at the beginning of four, in chapter 4, he's arrested. But before they are arrested, in chapter 4, verse 4, do you guys remember how many people were added to their number that day? About 5,000. About 5,000. So in two chapters, you you go from a few hundred people in a room like this um, to 3,000 and then to another 5,000. So you have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who are quickly becoming followers of Jesus. And then in chapter 4, coming towards the end, Luke gives us a summary of what this community looks like, what they're doing, what what they're like. He writes it this way, starting in verse 32 of chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believe, so all of them, all of these thousands of people, Of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So, what you have are thousands of people in Jerusalem who are marked by this one soul, one heart, one spirit. They have all things in common. They treasure Christ above all things at all costs. They're clinging to Christ, and it's marking the fullness of their lives. The entirety of their lives is marked by this. They're selling their possessions, not just possessions, they're selling homes and lands, things that they investment properties that they own, and they're giving the proceeds, and there's not a single needy person among them. Thousands of people, not one person is struggling financially because they're all caring for each other. And there's marked by great power and great grace. We're seeing miracle after miracle after miracle. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter five, what we see, um, Or people from the surrounding, everybody in Jerusalem is being healed, and so the people from the surrounding neighbors and neighborhoods and communities of Jerusalem are bringing their sick, bringing their lame, bringing their demon possessed to Jerusalem. Peter's walking along, and his shadow is healing people. Right? It says this in chapter five, verse sixteen. It says they were all healed. You've got to wrap your mind around this a little bit, friends. The culture of Jerusalem is turned upside down. Thousands of people have become followers of Jesus. Thousands are being healed. They're all being healed miraculously. And then, in the very next chapter, chapter six at the beginning, Luke gives another kind of summary of this, in chapter six, verse seven. It says, "In the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. No kidding. And a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. So that's chapter 2 through 6. Even the priests now, the Jewish priests who are deeply rooted in this faith of Judaism are now becoming obedient to the faith. They're becoming followers of Jesus. It's insane. It's amazing. Thousands of people are giving their lives to Jesus. Jesus. There's an overwhelming spirit of grace upon them and power upon them. Miraculous healings and signs and wonders. There's not a needy person among them. No one is clinging to the things of this world. They're clinging to Christ. And even the priests are becoming followers of Jesus. Now here's the question. That's the state of the church, Acts 2 through 6. How many of you in this room, show of hands, how many of in the room would say, that's it, Josh? that's what the church should be like. That's what flourishing grace should be like. What's described in Acts 1 through 6 is the perfect church. It's amazing. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of a community like that, great grace and power where we're sharing our stuff and we're we're just treasuring Christ. How many of you would say, yes, that's it, I'm in. Give give me some of that. Most of you, most of you. I'm going to argue this morning that it's good It's good, but it's not great. It's amazing, but it's incomplete. It's incomplete. It's it's actually not completely what the church should be like. There's something lacking in that description. And if you notice, I left out a chapter, a whole chapter, the first one, Acts 1. We skipped right over it. In Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus says to his apostles, he says, My, my spirit is going to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He does not say my spirit's going to come upon you and he's going to create this utopian society in Jerusalem where, where there are no needs and everybody's kind of sharing their stuff. It's basically, basically like communism perfected um, in, in Jerusalem. Sorry. Um, and, and, and the spirit's pouring out of this power and everybody's being healed. It's just this amazing thing in Jerusalem. He, he, and, and everybody's going to just live amazing lives of comfort and joy and forever happily ever after. It's not what he says. It's not what he says. He says, you will be my witnesses. He says, I'm going to advance my kingdom through my followers, not just in Jerusalem. No, 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 yeah, it's going to start here. But in all of Judea, in all of Samaria, into the ends of the earth, I'm going to advance my church through my followers. That is what this is going to be about. This is not about your comfort. In fact, I would argue, that I'm going to argue this morning, that Jesus cares more about the advancement of his kingdom than he does our comfort. Jesus cares more about the advancing of his kingdom, the advancing of his church, more than he cares about the comfort of his followers. In Acts 8, what we're going to see this morning is that through suffering, the church will become a people who bring the joy of Christ to others by the continued preaching of the word. Through suffering, Jesus is going to bring about, God is going to bring about suffering in this church, This, this kind of perfect little community in Jerusalem. Not little, this perfect community in Jerusalem. He's going to bring about suffering in order to advance his kingdom, to bring joy, everlasting joy of Christ to others by the continued preaching of his word, the gospel, as we're going to see in chapter 8. Jesus never intended his people to be a people of comfort, but to be a people of mission. We're never intended to be a people who seek our own comfort, but to be a people who are passionate about the mission of Christ. Now enter the human context. This is the human context of this passage. We are not supposed to be people who are passionate about our comfort. We're supposed to be people who are passionate about the mission of Christ. Jesus talks about this a ton. Matthew 16, uh, verse 24 and 25, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You're not to be a people who are passionate about your comfort. We're to be people who deny ourselves, deny our human longings and desires of comfort and take up our cross, die to ourselves. Don't pursue your life. You will lose it, but give up your life for the call of Christ and you will find eternal, everlasting life. When he sends out his disciples in Luke 10, he says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Doesn't sound like comfort. In John 15, 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Here's some comfort for you. When the world hates you, take comfort in the fact that they hated me before they hated you. It's, it's not about human comfort. It's about advancing the mission. You will be my witnesses. Jesus is going to advance his kingdom through his followers. But he cares more about the advancing of his kingdom than he does the comfort of you and I, his followers. And a church without kingdom multiplication is incomplete. 100% 100% of the time, a church without kingdom multiplication is incomplete. No matter how much they praise God and give the glory to God, no matter the quality of their worship, no matter the, the, the depth of their, their preaching, no, no, no matter the, the robustness of their theology or doctrine or the accuracy thereof, it does not matter how the, the extent of their fellowship and community together. It doesn't matter how much we love each other and care for each other. Without a passion for kingdom advancement, we are incomplete. Every church without the passion for kingdom advancement is incomplete. We cannot fulfill what Jesus has called us to to the ends of the earth without being passionate about kingdom advancement, without the hard, stretching work of evangelism and church planning. We cannot, we cannot be what Jesus has called us to be in Acts one Jesus knows this. And what he also knows, part of the human context, is that this is not in your nature. It is not in mine. It is not in my nature to deny myself comfort, to turn my back on my own comfort, is not human. It is not in my nature to turn my back on my own comfort in order to pursue something that is going to cost me, that is going to be pain, something that's going to be hard, that's going to stretch me, something that I'm going to have to endure in order to achieve something greater for the kingdom of Christ, to turn my back on comfort in order to pursue that is not in my nature. And friends, it's not in yours. If you believe it is, you have mistaken greatly. Mistaken. And so throughout history, beginning in Acts 8, God says, I, I'll take care of this. In, in Acts 8, we see God declaring this truth that he is passionate about kingdom advancement, that he wants his church in all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, but it's not in their nature. It's not in the nature of the humans that make up this church. And so in Acts 8, God says, I'm gonna force my people out of their comfort." out of their community, out of their church, out of their homes, and I'm going to use them to advance my kingdom. This is not our nature. Nobody in this room has, says, man, I'm ready to leave all of my earthly possessions, my home, my friends, my family, my comfort, in order that, that people in, in, in the roughest south side neighborhood of Chicago might receive joy. Who's ready to leave today? Who's ready to pack up today, take a few things with them, and head to Yemen so the people of Yemen might receive joy. This is not in our nature. North Korea, who's, who's ready to embark on the missionary journey to bring joy by the continued preaching of the word, this is not in our nature. Everybody's like, nah, not me. Not me. It's not in our nature to do this. And so God, in Acts 8, says, sit down. I got this. And he's going to force his people out of their comfort in Jerusalem. Now, Historical context. That's the human context. God is passionate about this. and No matter how hard we try to be, it's not within our nature to do so. Okay? You must understand that in order to understand the rest of this. The theology of persecution and suffering. God is passionate about the advancing of his kingdom. And you and I, it is not in our, it is not in our nature to reject our comfort in order to pursue kingdom advancement. Okay? Now, the historical context is this. In Jerusalem, at this point, we already talked about it, right? Thousands of people are becoming followers of Jesus, right? Now, Jerusalem was the epicenter. It is the center of the the nation of Israel, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. Worshippers of Yahweh, God, the temple of Solomon is there. People from all over the world, Jews from all over the world, descend on Jerusalem to worship and praise God. It it is where the political, religious leaders of the nation of Israel reside and rule over the nation of God's people, Israel. For hundreds of years, the temple has been there. For hundreds of years. Now all of a sudden, you have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who say, no, 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 we must follow Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law, has fulfilled the traditions. He's greater than the heroes. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Isaac. He's greater than Jacob. And so what you have in Jerusalem is, is yes, this beautiful church, but this unbelievable religious tension. Unbelievable. You see it throughout Acts. You see it um, when Peter and John are thrown into prison in Acts 4. You see this tension in the the political leaders of the day, in the temple, saying we got to let these guys go. We don't know what the people are going to do. The people outside of these walls, there's too much tension in the community. When the apostles are arrested in Acts 5, right? if you guys remember Acts 5, um, there's an elder in the temple, Jewish elder. Gamaliel is his name. He stands up. He says, fellas, I wouldn't kill them if I were you. Because there's a Thousands of people outside. And we don't know what they're going to do. We don't want that on our hands. And so this tension is growing and growing and growing and growing until last week we talked about it. Stephen, one of the deacons, goes to the synagogue of the freedmen, not the temple. The apostles are arrested in the temple. Peter and John are arrested in the temple where the political and religious leaders are. Stephen goes to the synagogue of the freedmen. The freedmen were freed slaves, Jewish slaves, probably enslaved by, by Romans, and they'd been freed from their slavery, and they kind of formed their own little outcast society with their own little synagogue. And Stephen shows up preaching Jesus, and they say, nah, in our house. They take him outside, and they stone him to death. And this, this tension is growing, and this act snaps the tension. Whew, the rubber band breaks, and acts 8 verse 1 and there arose that day a great persecution. For those of you who are old enough to remember in the late 80s, in the late 80s, there was unbelievable tension, unbelievable stretching, but not religious. This was a racial tension in Los Angeles. You guys remember this? Los Angeles in the late 80s, early 90s, there's unbelievable tension, uh, racial tension. It's kind of three big groups. You have the black community, the white community, and the Korean community. And and, and they just could not get along. And it's just getting more and more and more and more intense. And um, unjust things are happening left and right. And all the political leaders are trying to, like, dodge every bullet they can dodge, trying to hold it all together. Until in 1991, three officers violently assault and beat a black man named Rodney King, and it's caught on video. And the entire world sees it happening. And that tension is brought all the way to the max, but it doesn't break. It's a year later when the verdict comes back, and those officers are found, I believe, by an all-white jury, to be not guilty. It snaps, and the entire city just burns. People are being killed, raped, beaten. Stores are being looted and set on fire. Los Angeles explodes. It's a war zone. The National Guard comes in. It's insanity. The same thing's happening in Jerusalem. And the people, the Christians there, they scatter. They flee. They run for their lives. They run. They they flee. And Saul, it says that Saul um, approves of this Persecution. He, he, he approves of this, of this murdering of Stephen. It says that he's ravaging the church, is the language that Paul uses in, in Acts 8, verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul is one of these freedmen. He's hanging out with these freedmen. We believe, many people believe, that Saul's parents were former slaves. That's how he receives his Roman citizenship. And we see here in Acts 8, he's hanging out with these former slaves. He's doing life with them. He's in the synagogue with them. And Saul proves his persecution, and then he begins to lead the persecution forward. He begins to advance it, ravaging the church. And so people flee from their homes. These Jewish Christians, they leave all of their earthly possessions. They leave their homes. They leave their community. They leave their friends. They leave their neighbors. And they scatter into... All of Judea and Samaria. And in Acts 8, verse 4, it says this. We're gonna move into the kingdom context now. So that is the that is that is the historical context. Now we move into the kingdom context. Acts 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about what? Those who were scattered went about. Those who left their homes and all of their possessions went about finding new homes for themselves. No, doesn't say that. Those who, who fled their jobs and their careers scattered into all of Judea and Samaria and looked for a new job in order to support their family. Doesn't say that. Those who left all of their life, their friends and their family, they, they moved into Judea and Samaria, and they laid low. They, they went back to Judaism. They, they, they became good Jews, and they hid out in the synagogue so that no one would know their past, and they started their lives over. No, it doesn't say that. They went about preaching the word you got to let that sink in in light of the human context. This is not in our nature. In light of the historical context, great persecution ravaging the church. Verse 4 has got to sink in a little bit. Why on earth would anybody continue to preach in light of being persecuted for preaching? Not just a little persecution. I'm talking about ravaging persecution. Why would you continue to preach? Why would you continue to preach the thing that you are being persecuted for? You continue to do it. Why would you not lay low for a little while? I want to argue there's only one, there's only one reason. There's only one reason you continue to preach while being persecuted for preaching is because you believe that God is in control of all of it. You continue to preach in the midst of being persecuted for preaching because you believe that God, a sovereign God, is in control of every single ounce of it. You know that he is in this. And that it's meaningful. It is purposeful. And you will not reject him. You will not turn your back on him. But with boldness, you will faithfully continue the preaching of the word because you know that he's in it. You know that this is of him. He is sovereign over all things. He is the head of his church, and so you continue in faithfulness. In the early 1800s, there was a missionary named Adorayam Judson. Adorayam was the first American missionary to Burma, um, to the Burmese people. And Now, in the 1800s, a little bit different than today, uh, Adorayam knew that going to Burma, which is now modern-day Myanmar, was going to be brutal. He knew that this was not going to be a, a, a comfort thing, that he was going to have to die to himself. He's going to have to pick up his cross and f- to follow Christ. He believed that God was calling him to Burma. He knew that God was calling him to Burma. And so he says, I must go despite the dangers, despite the troubles, despite the fear that gripped him. I must go. Continue preaching the word. God is sovereign over all of this. Before he left, he fell in love with a woman named Anne. Um, and, and he asked Anne for her hand of marriage by writing a letter to her dad, right? It's what gentlemen do, and it's what they did in the 1800s. He wrote a letter to Anne's dad, and we see his knowledge of what he's about to face in this letter. It, it reads this way. Part of it reads this way. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of the missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and for the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? With a crown of righteousness brightened with acclamations of praise, which shall renown to her Savior from heathens saved through her means for eternal woe, from eternal woe and despair. This is a man who understood the weight of advancing the kingdom in light of a lack of comfort, and not just a lack of comfort. An unbelievable lack of comfort. Anne would go on to die in Burma. He would marry again. His second wife would go on to die in Burma from disease. Marry a third time. He would have 14 children, seven, sorry, 13 children. Seven of those 13 all perished from disease. Friend after friend, colleague after colleague died in Burma. From disease, cholera, dysentery, all kinds of things, 108 degree heat, exposure. He was thrown in prison in Burma for 17 months, endured unbelievable hardship. Never saw his mom again, never saw his dad again, never saw his brother again, never returned home for 33 years. 33 years he came home because of his wife. Uh, was dying. They they put her on a boat to bring her home, and she died on the boat on the way. Unbelievable lack of comfort, persecution. And yet, and yet, before his death in 1850, he had, it took six years, by the way, six years before they saw their first convert to Christianity. Before his death in 1850, um, they had raised up a church of hundreds of Burmese Christians. They converted or translated a Bible into the Burmese language and created an English Burmese dictionary, first one ever. He died of illness. They put him on a boat to try and get him home, to try and get him to civilization. He died on the way, on the ship. But to this day, there's about 4,000 Baptist congregations in Myanmar that all trace their lineage back to Adoram Jetson, thousands, thousands of people have been rescued from spiritual darkness and brought into eternal life because he was willing to endure. He said this towards the end of his life. He said, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. If I, if I was not certain, if I did not know that trial after trial after trial piled up on top of each other was not ordered with infinite love and infinite mercy, I couldn't have done it. If I didn't know that God was sovereign over all things with infinite love and infinite mercy, if I didn't know that the continued preaching of the word was going to bring joy to the people, that God was sovereign over it all, I could not have survived it. I couldn't have done it. And we see this in Acts 8, that people continue preaching the word because they know that God is sovereign over all of it. We see this throughout the New Testament. We see this throughout history. We see all around the world today where the kingdom of Christ is, is advancing. It's advancing through people who understand the idea of suffering and removal of comfort for the sake of the kingdom. Philip goes on in Acts 8, verse 4. In Jerusalem, there's no joy in the city of Samaria. Without the removal of comfort in Jerusalem, nobody is going to the city of Samaria. The gospel's not going there, and the people aren't receiving joy. The reality is that every single person in this room is a follower of Jesus. You are a follower of Jesus today. You've received the gospel of Christ because, with infinite love and mercy, God has ordered the suffering of his people again and again and again, and the kingdom has advanced around the world and into your own life. It's the only reason you're here today. It's the only reason you've experienced the fullness of the gospel. God is passionate about kingdom advancement, he's going to advance his kingdom. He's going to advance his kingdom in your place of work. He's going to advance his kingdom in your family. Those who do not know him yet, he's going to advance his kingdom. He's going to advance his kingdom in your neighborhoods. And he's going to do it through his followers. But the theology, the thing that we must understand, the thing that we must know, is that he's more passionate about advancing the kingdom than he is your comfort. And sometimes it takes a removal of comfort by the hand of God in order to get us to move. It's like the farmer who sees the field and he knows that the grass is running out. The cow doesn't know that. He wants to move the cow into a better field where where it's going to be better for the cow, and better for the herd and and all of those good things, but the cow doesn't move. He can push. He ain't going to move that cow. He can try to sweet talk it. I don't think that works either. Or he can get out the cattle prod. Works every time. Trust me, I was in a fraternity in college. Nothing makes you scatter like a little bit of electricity. Okay? Listen, a little, a little zap. Now, yes, in this, in this illustration, you are the cow. Um, Jesus comes along. God comes along. He says, I'm just going to move my people for the betterment, for the good, for the, the un, unimmeasurable, infinite love and mercy. I'm going to move them. It's going to be a little uncomfortable for a moment, but I'm going to move them. Now, some of you say, Josh, that can't be true. That can't be true. That's not loving. It's abusive. God is a God of love, and he would not do that. That's not who he is. Let me ask you this. When God did not spare his only son, Romans 8, when he did not spare him, but he subjected him to unimaginable cruelties, Beating and flogging, mocking, spitting, nails through his hand, a spear through his side, when he bleeds out on the cross to bring righteousness to those who love him and call him Savior and King. When he did not spare his son, was that loving? Was it kind to you? It was infinitely kind, infinitely loving. And if he did not spare his son for you, whom he loves more than we could ever begin to imagine, why would he spare me for the sake of those who do not know him yet? Why would he spare me for the sake of my neighbors who do not know him, or my family members who do not know him? Why would he spare me? Why would he spare you? God is, is love. And sometimes in infinite love and mercy, He moves us by removing comfort. And so the question is not, would God do this or would he not do this? The question is not even why. The question is, what do you and I do with this truth? Every writer in the New Testament speaks of it. I'll give you a few. And I hope these verses encourage you. For those of you who are right now maybe in the midst of a season of Discomfort, gospel sinner discomfort. In James 1, James writes this Count it all joy. Count it joy. All of it. Count all, it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. Perfect, incomplete, lacking nothing. It's bringing perfection. When we remain steadfast, when we continue the preaching of the word for the joy of others in the midst of our own suffering, in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of the removal of our comfort, count it all joy. It, when we're steadfast, it's producing in us perfection, completion, goodness. Peter talks about it, 1 Peter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, just a little bit, just a little time, it's short, it's short, it's a little bit. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore comfort, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever, amen. The God of all grace, he has it in his hands, infinite love and mercy, he's ordered it. And this is short, it's short, it's temporary, it's temporary. But the God of eternity, he himself is going to restore you. He himself is going to bring you comfort. He himself is going to bring you strength. It's temporary, friends. But God is a God of eternity. Finally, Paul writes about it as well. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. It's light, friends. It's temporary, but it's preparing. It's preparing something greater, an eternal weight of glory, beyond what you can begin to comprehend. And so press on, continue to preach the word for the joy, for the everlasting joy of others. When you experience discomfort in your place of work or your neighborhood or your family for the sake of Christ, continue to preach the gospel, to continue to exalt him and lift him high, continue to preach grace to them, for the sake of their everlasting, eternal joy. And count it joy yourself. It's short, it's temporary. It's through the gospel-centered trials, pain, and unrest, ordered by infinite love and mercy, that we are made complete. And our neighbors, our friends, our family, our coworkers, find everlasting joy in the continued preaching of the word. Let me pray for us. Jesus, this is a heavy text. It's a heavy theology. It's a heavy idea. But there's so much meaning there. So much joy to be found in treasuring you at all cost. And so I pray this morning for those in the room who right now are in suffering where comfort has been removed from their lives for the sake of the gospel, for those who are, who are experiencing comfort is because you're trying to move them to someplace else. You're trying to help them to remain steadfast. They may be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. Would they count it joy? Would they know it's temporary? It's a short time. But you are a God of eternity, a God of all grace. You are eternal. And for all eternity, you will bring comfort. Even though for a short time, it's removed. For your glory, not for our own. For the salvation and the eternal joy of others. So let us not run from these things. But let us continue to preach the gospel with faithfulness to our neighbors, our coworkers, our family. For these things in your name. Amen.